My name is Nancy Vaughn, and I'm from 91.3 WTSR at the College of New Jersey. My name is Nicholas Wilkerson, and I'm from Brave New Radio. Hi, my name is Claire Richardson, and I'm from Hartwick College. In recognition of World College Radio Day 2022, and on behalf of the College Radio Foundation, a group from the College Radio Day USA Board went to the White House on October 19. The group was made up of students, staff, and faculty, 19 in total, representing the medium of college radio from across the United States. The visit was to meet with White House officials and interview them on issues that are important to the students. The students did all the interviewing and were able to meet several Biden-Harris administration officials in the Eisenhower Executive Office building. We first met with Nick Conger, Senior Advisor, to discuss climate change and energy policies. I am uh, Nick Conger. I'm a Senior Advisor in the Climate Policy Office, which is an office that President Biden set up um, early on in in his time here as president. So it's um, the first ever climate policy office. And so it's really a reflection of just how seriously and ambitious the president has um, been on the climate issue. Um, And so we're a relatively small team, but we're kind of the central kind of coordinating point for implementing the president's climate agenda across the administration. Um, the most significant and historic achievement on climate change is the Inflation Reduction Act, which the president uh, saw through to completion and signed into law just over a month ago now. It truly is a transformational, game-changing investment in climate action that's never before been seen in this country. It puts $370 billion to work to transform our economy towards clean energy. But it also is central in our in the president's um, commitment to lowering costs for uh, everyday Americans. Uh, and includes energy, most specifically energy costs. So if folks want to upgrade their homes to more efficient appliances or go out and buy an electric vehicle, there are now tax incentives in place that folks can take advantage of to make sure that they can do that in a cheap and efficient way. So obviously the cost savings and economic impact of the Inflation Reduction Act is hugely significant. It also has been projected to reduce emissions by 40% by 2030, which gets us very close to the president's goal of reducing emissions 50% by 2030. We are very confident that we are going to meet that 50% goal by 2030 through a host of other initiatives that are on top of the Inflation Reduction Act. So you may have heard about the bipartisan infrastructure law, which has been in place now for just about a year. Also, transformational investments in electric vehicle infrastructure, in clean water development, a host of other clean energy technologies um, that will get us there. And the president is also very committed to continuing to move forward on other executive actions that he has the power um, to implement. He has jump-started the offshore wind industry, so we are putting turbines out in the ocean to make sure that we are generating clean, renewable energy through wind energy. He has boosted solar deployment in this country through use of the Defense Production Act and other mechanisms. And he has spurred electric vehicle development, talked about the Inflation Reduction Act, but also has put in place standards through the Department of Transportation and through the EPA to bring down emissions and reduce pollution and make more fuel-efficient vehicles. So that's just a quick kind of top-line snapshot of all that's happening across the administration on the climate agenda. And if you guys have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Yeah. Okay. So um, first of all, thank you for coming, taking this time out of your day. Absolutely. What you just said was a lot, so I'm going to. My question for you is: I know 
back when we had our last president, um, the U.S. was withdrawn from a group that was with uh, other countries that to help the climate change um, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, does President Biden have any, I, um, what is it, inspiration or um, thoughts on going back to that, or are we just going to be moving on our own as a nation? Well, he got us back into the Paris Agreement, which you're probably referring to the Paris Agreement on climate change, which is the international agreement that has 190 countries committed to reducing emissions. He got us back into the Paris Agreement in his first week in office. Um, And that was important because it did away with a policy decision from the previous administration that we clearly disagreed with. But what's most important is that we actually act on what the Paris Agreement asks us to do and asks other countries to do. And that is one of the key drivers for having passed this Inflation Reduction Act and the other things that has talked about. It's about kind of putting some muscle and some might behind the words of the Paris Agreement. Um, in three weeks, uh, the United States will be represented at the annual United Nations gathering of countries called COP, Conference of the Parties, COP 27 in Egypt. And um, that is kind of like the UN infrastructure that governs the Paris Agreement. So we're back in the Paris Agreement, but we are going to Egypt this year with this message of the United States is absolutely back at the table leading the global community of nations, not just because we're using words, but because we're actually backing it up with the actions I talked about. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nicholas Wilkerson of Radio Radio. My question is with, I know you spoke a little bit about um, kind of the infrastructure uh, expanding on electric vehicles. So, you know, with that, Obviously, there's going to need to be more um, charging stations around the country because a lot of times, especially, it's hard to kind of find a charging station. Yeah. Is there a plan in place at all to get the infrastructure built on the charging stations? Absolutely. It's a great question. So I mentioned the bipartisan infrastructure law. Infrastructure has traditionally been considered roads and bridges. This president sees infrastructure as building infrastructure for the 21st century. And central to that is electric vehicle charging infrastructure. So in the law, it required that each state put in place a plan for building out electric vehicle infrastructure using the dollars that the bipartisan infrastructure law puts into EV charging. Two weeks ago, every single state in this country submitted a plan for how they're going to build EV charging infrastructure, which is not an insignificant thing when you're thinking about certain states that have traditionally been not as supportive of climate action as you, as you may uh, think. But states like Oklahoma and Texas, regardless of their politics, came forward with an electric vehicle charging infrastructure plan. And the Department of Transportation will oversee that to make sure that there is a charging station within every 50 miles along highways in this country. So that's a very top line answer to your question. But there is a lot of kind of in the weeds details about making sure that states have plans, that they follow through with plans, and that they are building electric charging infrastructure because there is so much increased demand for EVs, electric vehicles. To your point, got to make sure that there are places that they can charge so that they can, that the range, as we scale up the range of cars over time, that they can get to charging stations and continue on their journeys without being disruptive. So great question, completely central to the president's plan on building out EVs. It's not just about saying, we believe in this and we hope it works out. It's actual policies in place to make sure that states and others are following through on infrastructure. Yeah. Hi, my name is Claire Richardson with WRHO. Um, So you spoke a little bit on the EVs and is there anything in place where you guys are looking to force manufacturers 
to have a bigger battery or that bigger range? I wouldn't use the word force necessarily, <laughs> but, but I will say most of the automakers mm-hmm. are making commitments on their own to electric vehicle technology, and they are investing into plants and into charging infrastructure, into battery procurement on their own volition. They're not being required to or forced to, but they see opportunity in electric vehicle charging, and, and that's where the consumer demand is going. That's where certainly federal resources are, are being invested to as well. So you've seen, just today we saw an announcement from BMW and a new, about a new plant in South Carolina for electric vehicle uh, mineral processing. We've seen them from Toyota. We've seen them from Honda. These are just in the past few weeks. These major, manuf- these major auto manufacturers are going out there and saying, we are investing billions of dollars into electric vehicle development, and we are building plants here in the United States to harvest and to develop the materials. So, um, but to answer your question maybe a little bit more directly, we do have standards in place, as I mentioned, the Department of Transportation, the Environmental Protection Agency do put standards in place that require automakers to meet increasingly more stringent uh, emission uh, reductions and efficiency requirements. And that moves them away from more polluting engines and towards more cleaner technologies. Yeah. And thank you for your time, Dave Wallowers. How are you using uh, your service? Um, so I have two questions. I wanted to ask more about bilateral partnerships, but since that lovely question just asked the two previous questions, I just wanted to ask piggyback. Um, the first question, or the first part of the question is, in your opinion, will uh, EVs hurt the economy? Um, assuming that you know, um, 21st century saw automation will continue, so the assumption is that um, companies will downsize because they'll be using technology to produce technology, so that will replace people. That's happening all over the industry. Um, again, that's just your, that's your opinion on that. But more importantly, I wanted to ask about um, potential bilateral partnerships or multilateral partnerships. Uh, you alluded to the uh, Paris um, Accords. Um, I know a couple of weeks ago when uh, South Africa's president, uh, Soro Ramaphosa, visited, uh, he and the president signed um, what is considered a, uh, what is it, the bipartisan, excuse me, the U.S.-South Africa Investment Advisory Task Force, where uh, Biden commissioned $45 million uh, for investment towards the Just Energy Partnership. So I just wanted to know, um, are there, is there anything else on the horizons in terms of uh, partnerships with other countries? I'll take the last question first. Um, Short answer is yes. Um, We are in constant uh, conversation with uh, global partners on uh, on specific kind of focuses of reductions of emissions and development of clean technologies. Um, So I am not in the international game so much, so I don't want to speak out of school in terms of specific countries that we're talking to about specific issues, but I will say that the president and his climate team, and we have, you know, uh, Secretary John Kerry is the special envoy of climate change. They are in regular, regular dialogue and communications with counterparts in countries across the world to make sure that they are hammering out agreements to reduce emissions that all connect to the Paris Agreement goals, because all these countries have all bought into the Paris Agreement goals. They're all signed on to Paris and the Paris commitments. So as a result, the United States has this important role to play in doing these bilateral conversations and, and making sure that countries are brought along step by step, whether it be on methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas that a lot of countries uh, are more and more attuned to recently, on clean energy development, on you know, carbon, which is the most traditional pollutant uh, greenhouse gas. So there are a lot of these conversations happening um, in tandem, but our, my colleagues in the international world are, are handling that on a day-to-day basis. 
And then what was your first question? I apologize. Uh, I guess the effect on the economy if um, said uh, manufacturers are leaning more towards automation and if everybody's going to use EVs, would, wouldn't that displace human workers? Oh, um, it's a good question. We are very mindful of that concern in both the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and in other initiatives that the President has put forward, he has uh, carved out what we call energy communities uh, programs, which require that investments happen into communities that are affected by the transition away from coal and fossil fuels towards clean energy. So both Inflation Reduction Act, Bipartisan Infrastructure Law have these programs in place. Uh, Moreover, many of the um, programs in place have certain requirements like apprenticeship programs, for instance, that do training of workers who either are otherwise going to be affected or want to be trained to be a part of the workforce moving forward. So we have labor wage requirements, apprenticeship programs that are all built into many of the programs in the Inflation Reduction Act in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to make sure that all these communities are a part of the transition and not left behind. It's it's very much a focus and a priority for the president. Oh, yeah, one more and then I... <laughs> Hello, my name is Nancy Bowden. I'm from the College of New Jersey, 913 So you're talking about tax incentives. Um, and so I was curious about how, what are some steps to take to publicizing these policies and these initiatives to get the attention and like support from like the general public? Yeah. Especially considering making like EVs more affordable and more yeah. accessible. It's a great question. It's an opportunity for me to plug cleanenergy.gov, which is a website that the White House just stood up maybe two weeks ago or so now, which is entirely consumer-oriented, so that everyday people could go to cleanenergy.gov and learn about how they can access the resources, access the tax incentives that are in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, So that's, like I guess, point number one. Point number two is that when we roll out these initiatives as the, so the IRS has a big part of it because, as you pointed out, there's a lot of tax incentives and, uh, and rebates. They are doing listening sessions with the public. And so when the IRS put out their most recent announcement about six key tax incentives that are going to be put in place, before we put those programs in place, they said we are going to do stakeholder and public engagement to get input from people so they can learn and make sure that those programs are crafted in a way that are responsive to what people are needing. So. Indeed, we have these programs in place and that they are being you know, announced accordingly. Um, but we also, and this is part of what I do on a regular basis, we also have you know, communications professionals that are making sure that we are indeed spreading the word and making sure that we are reaching people where they live and where they work. It's not just about the New York Times and the Washington Post, but we have to go and talk to regional reporters. And that's why you guys are all here today, I'm sure, across the country there are, you know, many, many radio, television, and print outlets that are reaching people where they live and work across the country that we are exceptionally focused on making sure that we are engaging to get the word out, in addition to cleanenergy.gov, which is up, and uh, hopefully a good resource for for consumers. Then we met Barat Ramamurti, Deputy Director for the National Economic Council, to discuss student loans, student debt, and college affordability. What the NEC does is um, help uh, coordinate economic policy for the president, help uh, advise the president on, um, on economic decisions. Um, and obviously, we have a lot of federal agencies that uh, have intersecting work that they do. So when we have a, an important issue, whether it's student debt relief or uh, affordable housing or, um, or access to affordable health care uh, or uh, 
gas prices and what we can do on, uh, on the energy markets. There's a lot of things that require coordination across all of the different relevant agencies and, and what the NEC does is help bring those uh, relevant folks together, uh, produce a recommendation that we can then take to the president. So uh, happy to, to take some questions, but just to do one minute on, on where we are in the economy right now. You know, since we, the president has taken office, what we've seen is, a, uh, in our view, an incredible bounce back in the economy. When the president took office, the unemployment rate was over 6%. Uh, in this country, it's now at 3.5%, which is a historically low uh, level. More than 10 million new jobs have been created since the president came into office. Um, we've also seen wages rising uh, for, for workers, including, in particular, for people who have traditionally been lower wage workers. And so we're, we're very glad uh, to see that. Uh, and the president's strategy has been really to invest uh, in America, invest in American production and manufacturing. We saw that with the infrastructure bill uh, that uh, was passed last year. We saw it uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was just passed, which has uh, hundreds of billions of dollars for uh, new clean energy production in the United States. Uh, and we saw it in the CHIPS Act, which is about uh, helping the American uh, semiconductor manufacturing uh, market. All of those have seen, number one, a huge rebound in manufacturing jobs in the United States. And, and company after company has been making huge multi-billion dollar investments in uh, American jobs. We've seen it in Ohio, we've seen it in Michigan, we've seen it in Texas. Uh, the president was recently uh, in New York to talk about uh, a big uh, uh, investment that was happening up there. So uh, that's the kind of economy that the president wants to build, an economy where uh, we're an attractive place to invest, where people can get a good paying job, uh, uh, making good products in the United States. Uh, that's not only good for American workers, but as we've seen during the pandemic, it's also good for the economy because we're less dependent on bringing things in from abroad. We saw during the, the pandemic how disruptive it was when uh, there are things that we need to get from China, when there might be some disruptions in Chinese manufacturing, or maybe there's disruptions uh, in shipping of goods between China and the United States. All of that leads to higher costs for American consumers. If we make more things here, uh, not only is it better for our jobs, it's also easier to make sure that we, we have what we need. Uh, we're not going to run short of it. So um, I see Karine is here, so maybe I can take a couple questions and then turn it over to her. Yep. Hi, Daniel Molster, WLMC Landmark College Radio. Question, because I know you had mentioned the student loan relief yep. program. So I know that currently the federal loans are being forgiven starting to at the end of the year, um, myself included in that. Um, but I had a question about private loans, mm -hmm. because I know private loans are a little more tricky. Sure. So the question I have is, often federal loans don't cover the whole tuition and fees for a lot of colleges. Is there any plan to help relieve those who have private loans? Like, for example, Sally Mae rakes people across the coals all the time. Um, yes. Is there any plan to relieve some of us who have private loan debt? Sure. For a lot of us, it's the only way to make school workable. Yeah, so it's a good question and, and kind of a complicated one to answer. So, uh, you know, what makes student loan debt unique is the fact that the federal government, in many cases, is the, the entity that issues you the loan, right? Uh, and that's different than like a mortgage on a house, right, where a bank is the one that issues you the loan. So one of the reasons that we're in a position to be able to provide debt relief is that we're the ones, we, the federal government, are the ones who made the loan and own the loan. And so at taking, you know, some of it off the top, is something that's straightforward. It's just something on our own books. Um, now, a lot of those loans are still serviced by a private company, right? So it could show up as Navient or Sally Mae or Mohila or whatever. 
And so you, the borrower, may interact with a private company, but that's still a federal loan, right? So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Now there's a much smaller category of, of loans, so just to keep this proportion in mind, about $1.9 trillion in student loans are outstanding right now. About 1.75 trillion, so the vast majority, are purely federal loans. Only about 150 billion of it are private loans. Um, those private loans are issued by you know, a private bank, a private financial institution, and held by a private financial institution. Um, our ability to provide relief on those loans, there's a different set of legal authorities and there's a different set of sort of financial conditions that we have to take into account. We're still trying to look for ways to provide relief to those folks because obviously they've also had issues repaying their debt. They've also struggled and they've been subject to the exact same kind of economic struggles during the pandemic. It's just that there's a different set of legal authorities and financial considerations we have to take into account and so we're working on that. But, but I just wanna make clear that just because your loan is serviced by a private company, you shouldn't think that that's a private loan. That, that could well be a federal loan. Sorry, I know we're out of time. After that, we then met with Corinne Jean-Pierre, assistant to the president and White House press secretary. During the start of the press secretary's visit with us, Vice President Harris suddenly appeared. Vice President Harris spent over 20 minutes with the group, answering questions after making an impromptu speech to the students. This was a remarkable opportunity for the students to discuss issues such as student debt and college affordability with the vice president. So my name is Corinne Jean-Pierre. I am the White House Press Secretary. Welcome all of you uh, to the White House. I know uh, this is a tradition, right, for all of you to come and, and interview us. And so I think it was not, you guys were not able to come last year. Uh, so we welcome you back uh, this year. Um, so not really, I'm not sure what you guys want me to talk about, but a quick intro, your day-to-day, -day, what, oh, what, oh, okay. what is the day in life? Okay, what is the okay, all right, okay. Well, that's always fun. Um, so my day, I'll start with like my own personal day. It starts pretty early. I wake up about 3:30, 3:45 in the morning. I start um, really going through all of the evening news. Um, oh, oh my gosh, this is much more important. Oh my goodness. Oh. oh. <laughs> no, finish. No, oh, I just started. No, Madam <laughs> Vice President, please. Hello, welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi. How you doing? Good. I'm so happy to see all of our journalists here. Um, I just, and Catherine, thank you for, for allowing me to interrupt you. Um, you guys are so important. Your voices are so important. Um, you know, there is so much about where we are as a world and as a nation that really, um, we're in unsettled times. We look at it in the context of a war in Europe, 70 years, we had peace and relative peace and stability. And now the international norms that were, were guiding principles for, for most nations around the importance of sovereignty and territorial integrity has been upended. You look at the fact that we thought that the issue of voting rights was long settled based on those courageous fighters for civil rights and for justice who fought for the Voting Rights Act, a young John Lewis, and now we see states purposely, intentionally attacking. The right to vote, the freedom to vote, 
by, I believe, intentionally making it more difficult for people to vote. And we just recently witnessed the highest court in our land, the United States Supreme Court, take a constitutional right that had been recognized from the people of America, from the women of America. That on top of the fact that during your lifetime, we have seen, I think it's the top 10 hottest summers. I'll get you the facts on that. The 10 hottest summers that we've ever witnessed during your lifetime. We've endured a pandemic of unpredictable proportion and the damage it caused in terms of the loss of so many things, loss of life, loss of normalcy. And so when I say to you that your voices are so important, I do think of it in the context of all of that and how much we need you all to lead because you have everything at stake in this moment. And you know it so profoundly and so intimately that I think your voices are gonna be pivotal to moving our nation to where we need to be as we go forward and hopefully not backward. You know, there's so much about this moment that also, because of the unpredictability of so much of this, um, that has created an environment where people feel that they're living in unsettled times. And also, in these moments, there is then a lot of confusion. What's up and what's down? What's the state of the law? What are my rights? And where that confusion exists, there is then an environment that is ripe for misinformation and disinformation and even predatory behaviors. And so again, with the gift and the skill you have as journalists, the importance of your ability to speak about fact and truth and to combat misinformation and disinformation becomes so critical, not only to clear up the record, whatever that might be, but to help settle us, to help us focus on what is productive. And that, after all, is the, one of the founding principles of our nation was that we would have a free and open press because we understood that central to a democracy is that voices that are critical, voices that are honest, voices that bring transparency, voices that speak fact and distinguish fact from fiction are essential to a stable nation and to its democratic principles. You know, as vice president, I have now, my team has told me, met with, either in person or by phone, 100 world leaders. Presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, and kings. And here's the thing I can tell you about America's leadership. When we walk in those rooms, historically and traditionally, we are able to walk in those rooms with our chin up and our shoulders back, talking about the importance and the strength of democracy, talking about the importance of a free and open press, the importance of rule of law, the importance of human rights. We've held ourselves out to be and have been treated as a model. 
of what a commitment to democratic principles looks like. But here's what I can tell this table of role models that you already know. When you are a role model, people watch what you do to see if it matches up with what you say. And so the things that are happening in our nation right now, my fear is, give license to autocrats around the world to say to their people, you want to focus on what it means to be a democracy and keep talking about the United States? Well, look what they just did. And the implication then of what we do in our own nation in terms of the impact not only on the people of our nation, but people around the world. So when I think about all of this, I do think of it in terms of the duality of the nature of democracies. On the one hand, when a democracy is intact, it is extremely strong in terms of what it does to uplift its people around founding principles, such as institutions in a society that, that, that fosters equality and fairness and judgment and truth. That's the strength of democracies when they are intact. The duality is that democracies by nature are extremely fragile. It will only be as strong as our willingness to fight for it. And again, that's where you all come in. So, I will remind you of what has already in your life and experience and aspirations and talent determined that you will lead at this stage of your life as you all have chosen to lead by doing what you are doing. It is so important. And um, we are 20 days away from a midterm election that in so many ways is going to decide the future trajectory of our country. And I would encourage you to continue doing what you've already chosen to do with your time and your talent, which is continue to clear up the confusion as much as you can, use your pen and your fingertips as you punch away to remind people of what is fact, help them not fear what often is fiction, and remind them that we are not alone, no one is alone, we're all in this together. So I'm so glad that you all are here. And um, tell me how you doing. What you got? What you got? How you doing? What you guys been talking about? Why are you here? What's happening? <laughs> tell me. Anybody, anything. We've talked about so far um, a lot of the student debt reform. Yes. Um, as well as clean energy. Yes. And um, recently we were getting into as well um, the new website that was built as in cleanenergy.gov. Yeah. And, um, how that's going to be able to help with uh, the new uh, bill that just got passed. So yeah. Infrastructure and like that, so. I'm really excited about all that work. I mean, you know, here's how I think about it also. So student debt, free point. 2020, record turnout for voting for young voters. Record historic proportions. And think about it, in the midst of a pandemic, where everyone was completely overwhelmed by what that meant if you were in college, if you were in high school, if you were just trying to have a life that involved you know, social and meeting people and bonding. And 
people voted in record numbers, stood in line. And the way I think about it is that when they stood in line, they put in their order. They said, there are certain things I want from my government. And one of them is for so many people, I want to be relieved of this overwhelming burden of student loan debt. Because so many were literally having to delay starting a family or buying a home or even paying rent um, because of that debt. And people put in their order. That's why they stood in line for hours. And they got it. People stood in line and said, nobody should have to go to jail for smoking weed. That's what happened. We're addressing that. People said we want to deal with the fact that we need to take seriously this, these extreme weather events and the crisis that is this climate crisis. And we put $370 billion into a bill that sadly not one Republican in Congress voted for, not one, to address that around building a clean energy economy and investing in the natural talent of our nation, investing in workforce development and training, including you know, the way I think about it is we should really, I think, reconsider this term about higher education and, and perhaps really think about um, the language we use and perhaps using the language that is founded in our understanding that there's very few jobs as we go forward that can be performed that give somebody the ability to live with dignity and maybe go on vacation from time to time that don't require education after high school. So how about if we talk about it as education after high school, and then what are the various tracks that are available there? So one of the things I love about our clean energy work is we're investing in apprenticeship programs also, right? Which are rigorous training programs, but teaching people to be electricians and engineers and, um, and in developing the skills that we need to actually build up our workforce to do very important jobs that pay well. So those are some interesting topics. What else? Yes. Hi. I'd really like to ask a question regarding what we're talking about. Of course. First and foremost, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to meet us. I of really course. appreciate it. I'm Jelica Hernandez for Radio Warner at Warner University in Florida. Uh -huh. So talking about um, student depth and um, post-high school education. Yes. According to the website for the U.S. Census, uh -huh. as of September 21st, 48% of the students that graduate a two-year institution cannot pay their yeah. debt because of the jobs they have. So they end up having 12.5% of their debt throughout most of their life. And this is without counting the discrepancies in race. How is that yeah. going to be addressed further on? Well, we, this is exactly the point of what we're doing, which is to deal with student loan debt in a number of ways that is about reducing, reducing the debt burden, $10,000, and for Pell Grant recipients, $20,000. And one of the important points that you're making that the policy seeks to address is the part of the issue is that people can't afford tuition. And especially tuition combined with the cost of the books that need to be bought, the cost of you know an apartment or a dorm room, and the cost of food. And so one of the things that has happened as part of this issue is that we have a whole population of people who don't complete their studies because they just can't afford to stay in school. We purposely designed the student loan debt relief so that 
you don't have to have graduated to take advantage of the debt relief. And to the extent that you all can help us get out the word on that, that would be really important. Because I think some people think, oh, this only applies if I graduated. No. Even if you didn't graduate, you can apply. And, and if you go online, we just started beta testing the thing on, on the um, Department of Education's website. The way we've been testing it, it takes about five minutes to apply for debt relief, and we need to get that out. But your point about two-year colleges and community colleges is critically important. And again, getting back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of developing the workforce to take on clean energy jobs and the jobs of the 21st century, plenty of those jobs require education after high school but not a four-year degree. So we want to create incentives and create a pathway for people to get into those educational and, and, and I'm a huge believer in the importance of community colleges in particular. They're part of what has built our middle class and, pu and pushing people into that because we're giving them the resources and actually funding those educational institutions to do their work. It's a great point. Thank you. We've got time for one more. Uh, okay, you guys choose. <laughs> Here, okay, that's a very high hand. Okay. <laughs> Her hand was the highest, I measured. Okay. Yes. Um, hi, I'm hi. Jay Carlisle from Wolf, um, excuse me, Wolf Radio from the University of West Georgia. My question kind of follows up with um, the last two previous questions from lovely students. Is that how can students of four-year institutions yeah. um, or those considering four-year institutions feel confident about job security yeah. once they graduate, like outside of um, yeah. loan forgiveness? Because I know a lot of students, um, especially yeah. peers of mine, they are saying, like, I don't really see the necessity of college at this point, even if there is, if it is affordable, because I can do this outside of high school and not have to go to college for four years or even two years and still make money. So what would be an incentive, incentive then for them? You are raising a lot of issues. That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> but no, and I'll t really great issues, because... Um, there is one, the issue of um, what, what are we emphasizing in terms of the skills we need to develop our workforce. Right. I, was, I was in a couple weeks ago in, um, in Japan and Korea because a lot of our bill, the, both in terms of our infrastructure work but also particularly the Inflation Reduction Act, is about encouraging and building up American manufacturing. Um, we are very committed to really putting resources and, 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 and federal resources into research and development and science and innovation, so important, right? And one of the things that I um, feel very strongly about is that as we're creating these new industries and also shifting industries so that we're bringing them more back home to both invest in, in innovation here but also to invest in manufacturing, right? Because the pandemic showed us with all the supply chain issues, if we're relying on other companies for our essential needs and something like a pandemic happens, which will happen again on some level, um, we've got to be able to take care of what we need in real time. Okay, all that being said. So what I've been talking with folks about is that we really ought to rethink how we are talking about the name and the title of jobs. Because Really, I think the focus should be on what are the skills that are necessary to perform the job as opposed to some fancy title. Right. And then asking ourselves, because these two points that you both are raising are very connected, 
Are we then focused on teaching the skills that are necessary to perform the jobs that are going to strengthen our workforce and our economy? And so there is that piece of what you are talking about that is very important, which is people coming out of college and also asking, with this degree I have, is it transferable into a job that actually I feel good about and that gives me opportunity and gives me dignity? Right? The dignity of work is such an important point. And so there is that. Are we teaching what, the, what, the, what we need in terms of developing a workforce? There is also what we need to do around student loan debt, which we have talked about. And then it is about making sure that um, people are aware of their options. And I think that's a big part of it. And, um, and being able to find that, that they're feeling that they are being stimulated in the work that they are doing. And I think that there are, um, there are a lot of reasons to remind students to pursue those things that actually do give them a sense of feeling. You know, I will say, you know, the thing that you want to just, you, you've done your assignment, your reading assignment, but you want to keep reading. Like, pay attention to that when that happens. Pay attention to it when you want to be in the class and debate that point. When somebody else may have said something on the subject and you're like, oh, you can feel, have a feeling about it, right? Pay attention to that. Because that means it's speaking to something. And, you know, don't chase a title. Don't necessarily chase a, a, a salary. You know, you need the salary that you need to live on. But do be conscious of what actually makes you feel something. Because you're going to work hard, and you're going to work for many, many years. And when you are pursuing something that gives you a sense of purpose and joy, um, the quality of your life, I think, is, is always much better than if you, if you don't. But it, that, for a lot of people, can be a luxury that they don't have. And I do recognize that, too, because you've got to pay the bills. Right. And especially when we're talking about first-generation students who are first in their family to go to college, um, often that luxury is not just there because it is also we're talking about students that are almost always helping their family pay their bills. And their obligations are bigger than just to themselves. And, um, and that's why we also need to, again, deal with the student loan debt issue but, but figure out how we are creating incentives for, and, and, and resources for people to be able to pursue their, their passion. After the vice president, we then met with Sheila Nix, chief of staff of the Department of Education, to discuss post-high school education, college affordability, and student loans. Uh, that was a great surprise, and we've had such a good partnership with every component here at the White House on the student debt relief. Um, the vice president has helped us get the message out. Obviously, the president helped us you know, develop the policy and make the decisions. And we've had a whole team here helping us build the technology to make it simple. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about that. I'll try to answer some of the questions on community college. That I, I've been here for a little bit, so I'm able to listen. Um, I feel like everyone is interested in this topic. So I'll, I'll keep kind of focused on that. If you want to ask me about any other components of K-12 education, I'm happy to do that too. But um, the, the main thing is, I think everyone knows, the application is live now on um, studentaid.gov. 
It literally takes less than five minutes. You don't need to have any specific forms. You just need basically your name, your email, and your social. And if you go on there, then you can get your application in. There won't be anything else you need to do um, unless you get contacted. So do it and don't worry about it until um, you either get the relief or you get a question maybe about income or, or some other eligibility. Um, but it's very easy and I think as everyone's asked you, it would be so great on your radio stations and your shows to really make sure that people go do that because we, we want everyone to take advantage of it. Um, the, the benefit goes about 90% to uh, individuals making under $75,000. So it's a, the attempt to target to the people who need it most. And if you apply now, um, you should be able to get, now some of you may not be in repayment right now because you're in school still, but if you have older siblings or others, um, if you can kind of get the application in, then before the repayment pause um, comes off in January, you should be able to see that on your balance. So it's, you know, no rush. You don't have to rush to the website. And it the website will be open until December of 2023. So you have over a year to do it, but, um, you know, always good to get it in. So, you don't forget. Um, so I think uh, Barat and the vice president both talked a bit about the kind of three-pronged strategy, which is the, you know, the immediate piece for people who we are able to forgive some debt right now. Reforming the loan systems for current borrowers and future borrowers, and then the cost of higher education as an issue overall. So uh, we talked a little bit about the debt relief, 10,000 or 20 of your Pell recipient, income limits 125,000 for individual, 250,000 for a family. That's all in process right now. So I think Barat mentioned income-driven repayment. In some ways, I am more excited about that change in policy than the debt relief because it's long-lasting and it's for the future. So if you, and, and I think it gives people flexibility, right? So if you have debt, but you wanna do a job that's lower paying, you wanna take a break between jobs, you run into hard times, it's based on a percentage of your income. So if you're making zero, your payment's zero. And the other thing we're doing there is that has happened sometimes with some programs in the past, but the interest kept accruing. But now we're gonna say, if you are out of work or you're in a situation where you, have, you don't have income, the government is going to pay that interest accrual for you so that it doesn't just keep going up, up, and up and doesn't really help you in the long run. Under income-driven repayment plans, um, for undergraduate loans, you would pay no more than 5% of your income. And after 20 years of paying 5% of whatever your income is, then those loans are forgiven. So one, it's not haunting you forever. And two, it's manageable. You can, you can do 5% and it can be based on your income, so you have the flexibility to take a range of salaries. So that is one program I'm really excited about because I think it, it helps beyond the immediate. The second one that we've been working on is public service loan forgiveness. So if you go into public service and you do that for 10 years, you can have your loans forgiven. So you pay for 10 years, the remainder is forgiven. And so another thing that would be great on your radio shows is we have a waiver right now because the program um, and previous administrations was not run well and people got a lot of rejections. We opened up uh, a one-year period that ends October 31st of this year to have people reapply and we'll reassess um, under a more favorable <laughs> mindset. And we've had, if you see on social media, a ton of people have had their loans forgiven, teachers, nurses, others that work in nonprofit industries. And that is another program that's going to be available um, going forward so that if you decide to do something more in the public interest, 
then you don't have to worry that you have unaffordable debt. So th those are the kind of new programs that will be going on. In addition, on the, on the straight cancellation, we've tried to do some work for schools that have been predatory. So a Corinthian, ITT, and others, we have also done something called borrower defense. So if, you've got, if you were kind of roped into something unfairly, we have now forgiven that debt as well. So I think that's kind of all the stuff around the, the loan programs. Now, the, the larger question is, what do you do to make college more affordable in the future? And I think that you've raised that. It's, it's a complicated question, and there's some things that we've been working hard on. One of them is to really try to work on free community college. I was um, in the second term of the Obama administration, Dr. Biden's chief of staff. As you probably know, she's a community college professor and still a community college professor. And so she has a real passion around community colleges and how they can benefit so many people. And so we've been working on something. We started working on it then called America's College Promise. And there are now a lot of cities and states that do provide um, two years free of community college. We'd like that to be everywhere. We're working with Congress to try to make that happen. And that, I think, can give people a lot of options. But the key to that is that it's not just the community college is free. It's that if you can start talking about that in high school, if you can start talking about to students when they just start, that if you take some dual enrollment classes, if you do some of these programs, you can, you can get your two-year degree for a lot less money and a lot less time. There was um, really interesting programs in Tennessee where they started mentoring um, students in high school so that they could get help doing the FAFSA form, help with the community college application. Um, one of the high schools in Nashville had a, um, kind of a mini credit union and a health facility. So also students could get some experience in the healthcare industry and the financial services industry. And I think maybe um, some of you have mentioned like maybe not getting a four-year degree. You know, maybe you do, you get some credits in high school, you do another year under one of these programs and you can get a job in finance, you can get a job in healthcare. Maybe you decide to go back later and get a four-year degree if you think it's worth it, or maybe you don't, because you can get a good job with, with that um, credential. So that's, that is one thing to just try to think of different ways to get people, I, the vice president said, don't call it higher, higher education, just like post-secondary education, and I think that's right. Um, the other piece of that is uh, other pathways, career pathways, and I think that's something you'll see coming out of the administration in a big way in the next few months. It's like, what else can we do? We just passed the um, Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act. So there's going to be a lot of jobs there. So we need to do a partnership between community college, high school, and industry so that people can get really good jobs but get trained for the right credentials. So you don't want to put the time in and then not have it. So you need the partnership with the businesses. And I think, um, you know, pathways. We, you know, we look at it as pathways. What is your pathway? And it could be a two-year college. It could be a four-year college. It could be a one-year certificate. But to try to get people to a place where they can do a job, as the vice president mentioned, that they actually like to get up and go to every day. And then, then the college accountability piece on the traditional four-year colleges. How do we keep them from keeping increasing uh, tuition? So it's, it's hard to do that just through the Department of Education, but um, Barat mentioned maybe we should look at some limitation on federal financial aid for, student, for colleges that raise their prices too much. You've got to be very careful that you don't punish the students. So you've got to figure out like what's the right balance, because if you say we're not going to let your students get financial aid because your tuition's too high, what, you know, what does that do for students and student choice? So we, we've got to be careful on how we think about that, but it's definitely worth thinking about. 
The other thing that we sometimes think about is just like name and shame, because right now, sometimes people just don't know. So there's a college scorecard that everyone can look at. That's another great piece of information to share with your listeners. Um, so you can see what is the return on investment at this college. If you graduate, what's the average amount of debt you'll have? How much, what is the starting salary at those schools? So that people can have some information. One of the things we wanna do on, uh, you know, as going forward on the new regulations on the income-driven repayment is to have students um, acknowledge the amount of debt that they would have to take to go to that school based on their financial aid package. Because I think, you know, when you look at a, and, and maybe the parents, uh, you know, or, or somebody else who can help them because you're 17, you might not, you know, it, it's like, oh, I have a loan. You don't really know what it means. And so, you know, having more transparency and disclosure in the system always helps as well. Um, but the other thing is, you know, we have a new um, assistant secretary. He came from Indiana University and he was the chancellor there. And he said, you know, a lot of schools really care how they're compared to their colleagues. So if you had, you know, if we said, here's five states and here's how these states rank in terms of what your tuition's gonna be and how much debt you're gonna have to take, that kind of information and getting it out to people can be really useful. So, so name and shame, it's, it's not always the, it's not the only thing we can do, but it is one part of a message thing. So maybe I should stop talking because I feel like I could talk about this all day long, um, but I want to make sure I have a few, few minutes for questions. Thank you again for everything. I just wanted to kind of, I guess, start at the piggy at the end where you left off in terms of transparency and accountability. Um, I think I would be remiss to say, I think we all know this, but to your point about 17-year-olds or anybody else before, um, unless you have somebody that's in your family that is very knowledgeable that tells you this, you won't know that colleges are businesses. So like we could just you know, drop the mic on that, right? So like colleges are businesses, so it's their incentive to do whatever is in, you know, in their best interest to make sure that we're paying. Right. Um, so again, all the points that you made. So the question I had is, um, I guess in terms of accountability or transparency, um, is there any type of federal regulation for yeah. colleges? Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of different sets of regulations. I think I mentioned, so one of the things that happens is you have to be accredited to be um, a college or university. Some of the accreditors have given permission to all kinds of schools that aren't good values to be accredited. Once you're accredited, you're able to get federal financial aid. So we have started working with accreditors to, to shut down the accreditation of those schools. And there are regulations on that. And there was, um, I think it's called like ACIS was a big accreditor that, um, I mean, uh, yeah, big accreditor that we removed their ability to be an accreditor because of their behavior around accrediting schools that were terrible values and were actually predatory. So those are some of the regulatory things we can do. Um, and you know, if we find out that the financial aid isn't being used properly, if there's not good accounting measures, there are, you know, there are definitely regulatory things we can do. Would be ideal if we had a few more, but it's, you know, it's a start. Do you wanna? Um, you left some Cardona. Um, oh, Cardona. Harvard <laughs> University. Um, you had mentioned uh, the free, uh, school for junior colleges. Yeah. Um, would that would high school students doing dual enrollment with that count for them as well? And also students that aren't enrolled 
full-time or would they have some sort of so um so you could do it a couple different ways if it was a dual enrollment as part of high school it could be free under that because you're still paying you're not paying tuition for high school um but it could also be separate it could be a, it could be free community college and you know the states and localities that do it some of some of them are slightly different but the ideal is to have it be at any age so you don't have to be coming right from high school but some of them are right now designed right from high school and um, and that would then be free for two years. So Dana Molster, WMC Landmark College Radio. Thanks so much for your time again. Sure. I actually have a question, um, kind of specific to Landmark, but K twelve also oriented actually. Sure. So Landmark College, where's a college that's dedicated just to neurodiverse individuals? So autism, ADHD, dyslexia have to have a diagnosis. I'm on the spectrum myself, um, and I just wanted to ask a question about how does the Department of Education see transitioning, like how do we get more neurodiverse students on that path to college? Because again, there's only two colleges in the US that yeah. specialize in learning disabilities and those, you know, those pedagogy and that practice. So how, how do we get, yeah. Yeah, how do yep. we, how do we get more colleges on board? How do we get more students on board to go yeah, to Yeah, and students college? understanding that they're, that they're, they're welcome, welcome and capable. And they can do yeah, it. Yeah, and that they can do it. Yeah, those are good questions. and. And some of those disparities have been made worse by the pandemic. So we're trying to, there is a bill that the president passed, um, the American Rescue Plan that is putting more money in, in especially students that you've identified to have more teachers that are trained, more counselors that understand this. And, and we're really now pushing the schools to use the money and use the money for examples that you just mentioned. Um, we, have, we have two, um, two different resources at the Department of Education. We, we actually have an Office of Civil Rights, and if a student feels that they're not getting a fair and equal education, they can file a complaint, as, as could their parents. And um, as you can imagine, we're probably more aggressive than the previous administrations on coming after schools on that, and that is one enforcement technique that we have. Um, that I think a lot of people don't know about. And it, it really helps a lot of students and families. Now, it's not the fastest thing, but a lot of times even filing the complaint can start having behavior change in, in the schools. And then um, we have an office of special education that has a lot of, uh, it's called, we call it OSERS for short, I, I forget, uh, education rehabilitation. And um, that, that has a lot of program and a lot of guidance for schools, um, high schools, middle schools, and um, so that's worth taking a look too. But if you, you know, if you want to be put in touch with somebody on our team that could kind of dig deep with you on that, I'd be happy to do that. Love to share perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This is great. After these interviews, the group was given a quick tour of the West Wing and in particular, the press briefing room, after which the group departed. Overall, I feel that the experience was truly amazing and encompassed what it takes to be a journalist in the real world and shows that college radio students can be journalists and can ask proper questions and gave us a great opportunity to speak with members of the White House staff. Overall, I feel that this opportunity was once in a lifetime, and I want to thank the Biden-Harris administration for awarding us this opportunity. I feel that this trip was a personal recognition in some of my future career goals in public service and policy research, all within the framework of bringing truth and multiple perspectives within the media. Reporting for the College Radio Day USA Board, I'm Claire Richardson. Reporting for the College Radio Day USA Board, I'm Nicholas Wilkerson. Reporting for the College Radio Day USA Board, I'm Nancy Bowne.